People love seeing things out of the ordinary. In the ancient world, it was a rare occasion. Back then, your little town or your village was your world, and people very rarely traveled far beyond it. And so they didn't see very many things that were out of the ordinary. They saw the same people, the same houses, the same animals every day. But the Roman Empire changed that, and the Caesars understood people love to marvel. They love to be amazed. So they set before them a spectacle in the circus. In addition to athletic contests, they would exhibit animals from faraway lands. We take this for granted, but can you imagine the amazement of seeing for the first time a a hippo or a crocodile or a peacock? Most people had never seen anything like this, and it was a sight to see. But eventually, everything loses its shine. I've seen too many times what once was a marvel becomes mundane. All right, so everyone's seen an elephant now. It's, it's less exciting. Have you seen men try and kill an elephant? So the Romans started putting on hunting exhibitions under the reign of Augustus. About 3,500 elephants were killed, by the way, in, in the arena. But even that's not enough. Humanity is cursed with the need to always see something new to be astonished. As the saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. What was groundbreaking for one generation becomes trivial for the next. I mean, you just try and sit through an entire silent film from the 1910s, and I bet you'd be bored out of your mind. But back then, in that era, it was astounding. No wonder it seems to last. All marvels seem to fade. But there is still one true marvel around, one that's lasted countless generations without fading. It hasn't grown tired or outdated. It still inspires awe and wonder and amazement. It doesn't get old, no matter how many times you see it. It still impacts people, and it it even changes the world. And of course, we're talking about the marvel of God's grace seen in salvation, The radical change of someone who wanted nothing to do with God to devoting their whole life to God is astounding. It's a true marvel to see a life completely change. And it continues to bewilder people, confuse some people, astound people. Perhaps the greatest example of this is found in Scripture in the Apostle Paul. Paul, who was then known as Saul, was was public enemy number one of the new church. He was an ultra-Orthodox Pharisee. He was committed to the traditions of the elders. But the teachings of Jesus flew in the face of his legalism and self-righteousness. And to think that the Messiah could actually die on a cross. Now, everything about the message of Jesus was offensive to Paul. And so he actually thought he was doing God a service by persecuting Christians. And after the martyrdom of Stephen, the first martyr, it was open season on Christians in Jerusalem. And Saul led that charge. Acts 8.3 says Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. And he put them in prison. Acts 9.1 says he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. But that all changed in an instant when Saul encountered the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. He beheld the power of the gospel And he radically changed overnight, such that just a few days later, he's going back to the synagogues. Now he's proclaiming that this Jesus, he really is the son of God. And then it says this, Acts 9.21, all those hearing him continued to be amazed. And they were saying, 
Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name? And who'd come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Just kind of behold the marvel. Everyone who witnessed Saul turn into Paul was astonished and astounded. Why? Because they knew they were witnessing the power of God. There's no other explanation for the conversion of, of Saul to Paul. He went from being the greatest opponent of the church to the greatest proponent of the church. He went from being willing to take life in the name of Jesus to, to give his own life in the name of Jesus. And after several faithful decades of service to Christ, he would do just that. Paul was a real historical figure. He, he's even attested to outside of scripture. But the fact of his conversion still confounds those who do not believe and astounds those who do. This is the marvel of God's grace in salvation. And it's still happening. You may not have seen a blinding light or been visited by the risen Lord. But every conversion is just as supernatural. That's because every time a spiritual resurrection is taking place, the spiritually dead are being made alive and born again. They're given new eyes to see, new ears to hear, new hearts to believe. And God is still in the business of rolling away stones from entombed hearts and calling the spiritually dead to come forth and to rise to new life. And that is the marvel of his grace in Christ. And it never gets old. When you truly see it, it never gets old. This is part of what we aim to remember on Easter. Today is Resurrection Sunday, a day we, we use to commemorate the resurrection of our Lord in a special way that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and was buried and rose on the third day is the heart of the gospel message. And this message of a crucified yet risen Savior gives us hope. What is the hope of the gospel? It's not just that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, that's the fact of the gospel. He died. He rose. But the hope is that in him and with him, we too will rise. Because of him, we die to sin. We rise to new life. The gospel, after all, is a message for us telling us that, that his resurrection becomes the basis for our resurrection. We're not just talking about resurrection in the next life, but right here, right now, in this life, through the miracle of new birth, where the dead are made to live. The Lord Jesus is still emptying tombs and, and calling the spiritual dead to new life every day. And this morning, as a, a special Easter message, I want to help you more deeply behold this marvel, the marvel of God's grace in salvation. You need to peer further into the depths of God's salvation and just sit in awe of it, marvel, and then live in light of it. And to help with this, we're going to turn to the book of Ephesians, which was written by a man once named Saul, now the Apostle Paul. If you need help, you can find it on page 151 of your pew Bibles. Pick those up. Otherwise, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, and this is a, a watershed passage on salvation. And it makes plain that the wonder of spiritual resurrection that God still performs. And so from this special text, we're going to try and observe just the marvel of God's grace in salvation. That you may live in light of it. The marvel 
of God's grace in salvation so that you may live in light of it. Ephesians 2 is such a special passage because you have one of the clearest presentations of who we are, B.C. and A.D. B.C., before Christ entered our lives, who were we? And then A.D., after we encountered Christ, who are we? This passage tells us, let's find out. We'll start with this, number one. Our condition before Christ. Starts off with our condition before Christ. And if we have to put it in one word, it would be this. Dead. Our condition before Christ. Dead. Verse 1 just begins with a point-blank assessment of our condition before Christ. It says what it says, verse 1 of Ephesians 2. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The message of Jesus does not start off with good news. It starts off with some fairly bad news. This is part of the marvel, though, by the way. Part of what makes this news so marvelous is that it springs out of the worst possible news. But first, you have to, you have to reckon with this. You have to understand, appreciate the bad news. Before Christ, we weren't just a little spiritually weak, a little spiritually sick. We were dead. Dead meaning dead. Like you have no life within you, no spiritual life. You're physically alive, but spiritually you're you're cut off from God. Like a branch that's been cut off from a vine. Your soul is cut off from God and just left to wither. It's just like the father said of his son, the prodigal in Luke 15. He said, my son is dead. And his heart was still beating as he was devoting his life to loose living. But as he turned away from his father's household, his soul was just cut off from his father and his father's ways. And this condition of spiritual death took place, it says, in your trespasses and sins. Sin, in a sense, is both the cause and effect of our spiritual death. Trespasses and sins are more or less synonymous. It's referring to the failure to live according to God's holy standard. We don't even come close to measuring up to his perfect righteousness, which he rightly expects. Ours is a thoroughly lost condition, and and our death communicates a total loss of hope. Just think of some of the consequences of this spiritual death. Just as the physically dead cannot communicate with the living, so the spiritually dead cannot communicate with God. He does not hear them. And just as the physically dead cannot act or respond, neither can the spiritually dead. You can stand in front of a corpse and just and beg and plead that it would move the slightest muscle. Just raise a finger and it won't. It can't. It's unresponsive by definition of death. And likewise, this condition of spiritual death, we're unresponsive. We're not able. We lack the ability to respond to God. The dead have no power to bring themselves to life. They're utterly hopeless. And so, yeah, I'd say we're, we're starting off with some pretty terrible news. But Paul is not done thoroughly unmasking our desperate condition B.C. before Christ. Verse 2 continues. Speaking of our sins, it says, In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Walked is used here in a uh, metaphorical, ethical sense, referring to how you lived. The character of your life was sin. 
You transgressed God's good ways over and over again, oblivious to the fact that you're just heaping up a pile of debt before God that reaches to the heavens. And it says this walk was according to the course of this world. Course is used here in a temporal sense, so it's meaning the age. And world is not talking about the planet, but the world order. It's all the evil systems and ideologies that, of man that govern society. So when he says course of this world, it's, it's just talking about the spirit of the age. This present and ongoing evil age. And the spirit of the age changes from generation to generation. But it's always opposed to God's truth and God's values. And such worldviews have as their mastermind Satan himself. By them, he captures and enslaves mankind. People think they're free. Kind of like sheep think they're free in a pasture. Not realizing they're just being prepared and held over for slaughter. And before Christ, all of us just went along with the spirit of the age. Didn't even really oppose it. Like sheep. Just loving the world. And desiring to be accepted by the world, we just happily bow down to the changing whims of the present evil age. And don't we still see this happening before us, unfolding before us in our generation? There's a million examples. Just take, for example, the rise of transgenderism. You know, for a couple of centuries, people have been claiming that us Christians are somehow against science. But now, truly just taking biology and throwing it out the window, we're told that men can be women, women can be men, or any of the hundred plus new genders. Now, just think about the people today who actually believe this is truth and support this. Those same people, you go back 20 or 30 years, and all those same people would have roundly condemned transgenderism as immoral and and likely a, a legitimate mental health condition. Many of them are on record doing just that. But how quickly people change and just give in to unrighteousness. Why? It's because they don't love God. They love the world that they're desperately desiring to be accepted by this world. Verse 2, they walked according to the course of this world. And to make matters even worse, we have to ask, who's steering this ship? Who's charting the course of this deranged world. And he he affirms in verse 2, it's the evil one, Satan. You also formerly walked according to, he says, the prince of the power of the air. The term prince in Greek is archon, meaning ruler or magistrate. The realm of rule is the air. It's not talking about the atmosphere. You think about in Greek thought, the four elements, you can see water, You can see earth. You can see fire. You can't see air. And air became associated with the unseen realm. And so the prince of the power of the air is none other than than Satan himself. And Paul, later in this letter, explicitly identifies him as such. He is the ruler of this world. 1 John 5.19 says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. How does he exercise his power? Well, most of all, like Paul says of the devil in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, he says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light 
of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The evil one takes the gospel and it's sown by the road and he just snatches it right up. It's been said that in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Well, Satan found pretty easy prey on earth. It's being populated with spiritually blind everywhere. And he very easily set himself up as king. And all he does is just further lead people away from God. So it's no wonder that 2 Timothy 2.26 says of those outside Christ that they've been ensnared by the devil and they're being held captive by him to do his will. doesn't sound like much of a free will. It sounds more like a captive will without even knowing it. Satan rules the air. Verse 2 says he also rules the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Again, the spirit of the age, the spiritual atmosphere of the world is ruled by the devil. We used to be children of God, but now it says we're just sons of disobedience. We're made so by our father, the devil. But you keep reading, it's not like we're being held captive against our will. We may be under the influence of this world system and spiritual darkness, but the next verse shows uh, we enjoyed it. We were, we're, there's no other place we would rather be. Look at verse 3. It carries on. He says, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul's not done exposing the depths of depravity of our lost condition before Christ. He says, back then we also lived in the lusts of the flesh. Word for lust is epithumia. It just means strong desires. It can be a good desire or a bad desire. It really just depends on the context. Here, these are clearly wicked desires. They're coming from, it says, our flesh, which refers to that weak part of humanity that was easily ensnared by the devil and enslaved to sin. So this means that there's corruption in our spiritual bones now and that they lead to twisted desires. And he's saying, we used to live according to these twisted desires. We should have denied them, but no, we all too happily gave into them. And that, that yields the rotten deeds of the flesh. And so as you can see in verse 3, Paul adds that we were indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Indulging is a present active participle, means, which means this is an ongoing action. Just over and over again. It's like dipping a tea bag in water just over and over. Each time the water gets a little bit darker, a little bit darker. And so before we were thoroughly steeped in sin and our souls were darkened. Our minds too were set on doing evil. If you like, you can quickly flip over to Romans chapter 1. Because over there, the same author, the Apostle Paul, he really goes on to, to round out the depravity of our condition, B.C., before Christ. Romans 1, Paul says there, before Christ, we were among those who suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. What we knew to be true of God, we suppressed. We exchanged the glory of God for a lie. And as a result, our hearts and our minds became darkened. Then he says this in verse 28. To, to round off our condition, Romans 1, 28. 
all of us before Christ, it says, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This doesn't sound like a people kicking and screaming against sin. It sounds like those for whom sin is second nature. And in reality now, for us, it's first nature. You can go back to Ephesians 2, and that's why at the end of verse 3 of Ephesians 2, he says, we were by nature children of wrath. By nature children of wrath. We don't just have an external problem like we do bad things. We have an internal problem of our nature that we can't change. This goes back to our spiritual death, which was brought on by the first sin of Adam and passed down to each generation and just yields a crop of more and more sin. But as the wages of sin is death, so we find ourselves under the condition of God's wrath, which is his righteous indignation toward all who are against him. And so, yeah, this, this sounds pretty bad. Right? So far, this picture is, is bleak. It's just a bunch of bad news. This is a stinging and harsh appraisal of our condition before Christ. We're all in the same boat. You see how Paul includes himself in verse 3. I'm no different. Paul is no different. We all were like this. All people are born into the parade of the world. It's being led by the devil, marching away from God forever. And there's no place we'd rather be. We were held captive by the flesh from within, by the world from without, by the devil from below, all keeping us from God above. And so if you had to put it in one word, it would just be dead. We were dead. Now, at this point, after these first three verses, keep it to yourself, but I'd be very curious to know what you're thinking right now. I wonder if some of you are, are put off. This seems a bit much. This is it's too harsh, too mean, too negative. This is not very uplifting. These three verses don't make you feel very good about yourself. It, you don't want to think of yourself in such terms. You'd like to believe you're an exception. God wouldn't think of you like this. He would not ever make you an object of wrath. You're not that bad. But listen, despite the sting, I really hope you can stop and think, humble yourself, and actually come to appreciate this bad news. And that it is true of you as well. That's because this bad news is given so that you might live. There's a cure that's going to be offered here, but you will not accept the cure as you need to unless you are utterly convinced that you will die without it. Let's say your leg has been red for a little while, a little bit swollen, doesn't hurt that much, a little bit of a nuisance. You don't think it's that big of a deal, but you go to the doctor anyway just to get it checked out. So after the visit, the doctor comes back and says, well, we're going to have to amputate your leg. You're thinking, no, you're not. <laughs> like, I didn't come in here for that. Just 
I don't know what you're talking about. That sounds ridiculous. It doesn't even hurt that much. It's not that bad. I just came here to get it checked out. There's, there's no way I'm leaving here. You're going to amputate my leg. But then the doctor tells you a little bit more information. He reminds you that you have diabetes, which has, as a complication, reduced blood flow to the feet. That means reduced healing, reduced feeling. So some time ago, you must have developed a sore on your foot. You couldn't feel it. It never healed. It only got worse. It's led to an infection. You already have tissue death. It's going to spread to the bone and then to the blood, and then you die. He shows you the underside of your foot, and there's a gaping, infected ulcer. You never saw it. You never felt it. He also shows you other test results, and he proves what he's saying is true, that this amputation is actually the only way to now save your life. Now, you, you still technically have a choice to make, but although this is not very good news, it's not the news you wanted to hear, you value your life, and so you, you would accept it. In a way, this bad news is actually good news. It's life-saving news. It, it, it prepares you to yield to the only cure. You have to just swallow the bad news. You have to humble yourself and accept it. Only then can the doctor do what is necessary to save your life. And this is not too unlike how our salvation works. Yes, by design. It starts with some very bad news. These are just the facts. Your sin condition has already killed you spiritually. And by the time your physical life runs out, you will be sealed in a state of death forever, an eternal death where your soul is cut off from the loving kindness of God. You only know his wrath. You've been deceived by the world, trapped by the devil, carried away by your own flesh, and there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do to save yourself, to change your nature. Nothing. But this bad news is not designed to leave you hopeless. It's meant to save your life by bringing you to the Savior, the only one who can do something about it. And for this to happen, though, as a prerequisite, you have to get rid of your pride, your self-righteousness, and your rebellion against God. Only those who humble themselves before God accept the test results and just affirm that they stand guilty as charged. Only those people are then greeted by the great healer, the physician of souls, Christ Jesus. And he comes not to take life, but to give it by amputating the sin that's killing you. In case you didn't know, God sent his son Christ into the world. As Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, free from the stain of sin, not even once giving in to sin. He was the innocent, spotless lamb of God. But this lamb was meant to be slain, slain for us, sacrificed on that cross. He did that for us. A lot of people died on crosses, but no, no God-man ever died on the cross. No sinless divine Messiah ever died on the cross. And as he did so, he did so for us. And a transaction was taking place on that cross where all of our sin, our guilt, our shame, our debt, everything we accrued before God to our account that condemned us, all of that was on the cross transferred to Christ's account. And then by virtue of his, his being, he, he canceled it, just wiped it out. He paid the penalty for it. God dealt with Jesus as if he had been the one 
walking according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, as if he had been the one indulging in the desires of the flesh. On the cross, God made his son the child of wrath, that you and I might be adopted as his sons and daughters. I don't think I can say it better than this. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. It says, when you were dead in the transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. We were dead in those transgressions. He's forgiven us all those transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This is what Jesus did for us, for those who've placed their full faith and trust in him. And if that describes you today, then what comes next in Ephesians 2 also describes you. Now I think we're ready. We're thoroughly prepared for the good news. Now we're able to really marvel at the grace of God in Christ, this undeserved salvation. So we can find, secondly, our condition after Christ. Our condition after Christ. If you had to give this one word, it would be alive. Our condition after Christ, alive. Look at verse 4 in Ephesians 2. It says, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You notice verse 4 starts off with two words here, two words that change the course of history, that change the course of our lives, but God. God's the main subject now, not us. Our salvation is not about us. It's not about what we have done. It's entirely about God and what he has done. And this is why Paul doesn't just say God, but he starts with the adversative, but God. In contrast to all that bad news, God has entered the picture to do something about it. And these two words form an unbreakable hinge between B.C. and A.D. They start in motion a train that can't be stopped. They topple the first few dominoes of our salvation. In these two words, we find the kernel of all our hope. We were lost, but God. We were condemned, but God. We were dead, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, Paul says, and with this, he's further qualifying the nature of this God. And this is so key because after verses 1 through 3, all we expect from this God is wrath. We're children of wrath. We deserve it. That's what we expect. If God were to save no one and just judge everyone, he'd be doing nothing wrong. And that would just be a marvel of his perfect justice. And he is perfectly just. But he's not only perfectly just. He's also rich in mercy. Mercy is the virtue of being moved to compassion or pity over those who are in need. And God is not a miser with his mercy. 
And like the billionaire who gives $20 to charity. God has, has a huge bank account filled with mercy and he's ready to empty it. His mercy, it says, is propelled by his great love. But God, because of his great love with which he loved us, was moved to mercy. He's just not a God of love. He's a God of great love. And yeah, there is some tension between the love of God and the justice of God, the mercy of God and the judgment of God. But this scripture makes clear that it was the love of God that led him to send his own son to bear his own justice that we might receive his mercy. This is just part of the marvel. We know John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's why he sent the son. He was compelled by this love. This by no means means we were innocent or we deserved it. We merited love. Just the opposite as we already saw. We were helplessly entrapped. But for some unknown reason, he was just moved to mercy over us. Imagine a wolf has been savaging your flock. One day you catch it in a bear trap. And as you approach it, to put it down, it snarls at you. But for some mysterious reason, you're moved to compassion over the wolf, to pity. You realize this beast is both trapped by the trap and trapped by its very nature. You kind of feel like you want to let it go, but you know you can't. If you let it go, it will just go back to killing your sheep. It's just in its nature and you have no power to change it. But God, when he was moved to pity over us for some mysterious reason, as he was moved to compassion over us, the difference is there is something he can do to change us. He can actually transform us from wolves to sheep. He has that power. And verses 5 through 6 tell us what God would do for us to change our condition. Verse 5 again says that even when we were dead in our transgressions. He made us alive together with Christ. The first six Greek words of verse five here are identical to those of verse one, except Paul switches to the first person, but he's clearly just picking up the thought from verse one. He's resuming that thought from verse one, this, this general thought, we were dead in our sins. But look, even while we were dead in our sins, even while we were in that condition, because of his love and mercy, God did three things for us. And so three main verbs follow telling us what God did to change our condition. First, he made us alive. Underline these. He made us alive. And this first verb means exactly what it says. He quickened us. He brought us from a state of death to a state of life. And it's just not something we can do. We can resuscitate a person for a little while, keeping them from death or on the brink of death, we can kind of keep them alive for a little while. But as you know, there, there's a point of no return. If someone passes over and no amount of resuscitation will bring them back, we can't cure death. But for God, he has power over life and death. It's actually a small thing for him to bring the dead to life. Physically, he will do so on the day of resurrection. Spiritually, he does so now. The same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, will one day give life to your mortal bodies, Romans 8. But right now, he gives life to your souls. It's the miracle of new birth. The second action God performs is found in verse 6. 
where it says he raised us up. Having been made alive, God sets us on our feet. We're not raised up to just stay in a tomb, but just like Jesus raised Lazarus and then called him to come forth. So we're raised up and then called to to walk, to walk after him, to live a new life. We're raised up to live for him, to live for his glory, to live for his name. This, This new life the Lord has given us, it's not just a shiny new present that's locked away in a display case until we're older. And he, he gives us new life right now because he expects us to use it right now, to use all of it, to spend it all for his namesake. And then lastly, the third thing he does for us is at the end of verse six, that he seats us in the heavenly places. Kind of sounds strange. God raises us up only to sit us back down. But of course, this seating is not meant to communicate our inactivity in our new life, but rather our position, our heavenly status. With this new life, God has already enrolled our names in heaven. This is akin to our heavenly citizenship. And practically, we're not in heaven yet. We don't live like we're in heaven yet. But positionally, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That means we already have a seat at that table with our name on it. It's just a matter of time before we're there by his grace. Speaking of being in Christ, though, did you notice how all three of these actions take place in Christ? Do you see that? What did we do to raise ourselves up or seat ourselves in the heavens? Nothing. God did all of this and he did it in and with his son. It's by virtue of his death, his resurrection, his ascension that we can be regarded as what we are not righteous as we are united to him. And so really the marvel of God's grace and salvation comes not just because of Christ, but as we're united to Christ, as we are knit to Christ. And this is a massive mystery revealed. You see how it says, we're not just made alive. We're made alive together with Christ. We're not just raised up. We're raised up with him. And we're not just seated in the heavens. We are seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Jesus did it all. He paid it all. He was raised over all. And only in him can we be saved. And so God effectively saves us by just plugging us into Jesus from whom all blessings flow. And Paul harped on this back in chapter one as he introduced this letter. He couldn't help but just make the connection that all of our salvation blessings come from being united to Christ. Just look back a page to chapter one, verse three. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, in Christ. Verse seven, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. On it goes for the whole chapter, the whole book, the whole Bible. We only find life by being found in Christ. But not all are found in Christ. 
Not all are united to him. And so then we wonder who then? Who are those found to be in him? Well, the answer is those who believe in him. Those who have beheld the glory of his grace, who've humbled themselves before it, acknowledged their lost condition, repented of their sins, pleaded for mercy, and placed all their hope in Christ alone. You know, back in verse 5 of chapter 2, Paul couldn't help himself. He had to just throw in this little parenthetical statement when he says, by grace you have been saved. Just to remind us, lest you forget, lest you get the mistaken impression that, that you had anything to do with this. You didn't. This was all by grace, God's unmerited favor, this free gift. The salvation he gives is a free gift to you. But only those who believe receive it. As he goes on to say in verses 8 and 9, well known, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The only way to access Christ's work and this gift is to receive it from him by faith. And faith in God's wisdom is the perfect means of our salvation. Because when you think about it, it's like an anti-work. What is faith but the humble recognition that I can't do anything? I can't do anything to save myself. I can't contribute anything. I can't be good enough. I can't work hard enough. I, I can't endear myself to him. All I can do is just come to him and ask for mercy. That's it. I just plead for mercy. That, that's what faith is. You have to be just like the prodigal son from Luke 15, like I mentioned before. He took his whole inheritance, squandered it on loose living. He, he sh- disowned and shamed his own father and left. But then a key transition, it says he came to his senses the eyes of his heart were opened. He realized he had done a great evil, a great wrong. He realized, no, it's actually not better living in the course of the world. It's far better in the father's house. So he resolved to go back. I've got to go back to my father. But he knew he had nothing to bring. He had nothing to merit himself. In fact, he knew because he had so dishonored the father, he deserved to be rejected. But still, he was going to go back anyway and just plead for mercy. That's it. Just kind of hope for the best. Plead for mercy. That's a picture of faith. Just listen to Luke 15, 18 through 19, which tells of his return. The prodigal says, I will get up and go to my father. Now say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me as one of your hired men. Take me back as just a servant. This is the same move you must make to be saved. You've got to repent and believe. You have to return to God and then you're just seeking his mercy. That's all you can do. We're not worthy to be his sons. We're sons of disobedience. Maybe we, we think, maybe just maybe he'll take us back as a hireling. You know, the, the, the bottom rung servant. But here's, here's the marvel. Because of his grace, because of his mercy, he doesn't just take us back and throw us to the bottom of the barrel. Listen to how the father responds to the prodigal's return, which mimics our father in heaven. It says the prodigal got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father 
saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him, and kissed him. Verse 22, the father said to his slaves, quickly bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and he's come to life again. He was lost. He's been found. They began to celebrate. This is what we mean when we say the dead still come to life. That God raises the dead every day. Every time a sinner returns, runs back to the father's house, they go through the door of Christ by faith alone, carrying nothing else. And I just pray, if you're here today and you've not made this trek, that you do so now. You've heard the only means of life. Today can be the day of your salvation. You have to look on Jesus whom you pierced with your transgressions. But knowing with this assurance, he gives in his word. If you go like that prodigal, just repentant, humble, pleading, he promises to receive that person every time and grant them new life just by grace. It's the marvel of his grace. And the marvel of God's grace comes with a stated purpose. It's briefly, it's found back in verse 7 of Ephesians 2. Why did God do all this for us? We didn't deserve it or earn it. There are many reasons. He's already mentioned his great love, but Paul throws in another reason, another divine reason in verse 7. Why was God moved to, to do something which we didn't deserve? Verse 7, it says, he raised us up so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God saved us in part to show something. Word for show means to make manifest, to reveal. Kind of like a little kid who's excited at class. He's going to do a show and tell of some prized object. And so what did God want to show off? He saved us to show something off. What's he want to show off? It says the surpassing riches of his grace. His grace is what's being displayed here. And it's limitless. It's like a well that never runs out of water. No matter how many times you draw from it, it never runs out. We just need a drop to save us. And he just gives us an ocean. And on the receiving end of this grace was his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We are the beneficiaries of this grace. Which is why we say salvation is not about us. You might think God is somewhat egotistical here because he's just desiring to show off his own grace. But you have to realize God is bound to exalt only that which is most glorious, most marvelous, most beautiful. What else is there for him to exalt like this? There's nothing more glorious than his own grace. It's not us. It's not like we got ourselves there. It's only his grace working through Christ that's worthy of such marvel. And God is indeed glorified when we marvel at his saving grace. And that's true, not just for eternity, but right now. See that little phrase in verse 7, ages to come? Most people read that and think it's talking about heaven. Heaven's not excluded, but do you see how ages is in the plural? He's not just talking about the final age to come, but the ages to come, referring to Every passing age from here on out. 
not just the last age, but every age, every generation, God aims to put on display the surpassing riches of his grace. He's continuing to demonstrate his grace in Christ each and every day after the cross. He does so in us who believe. Now, if you're here this morning as someone who believes, I want you to think about your testimony. It's that story of how you came to know Christ. Everyone has one. Everyone has a different one. I bet you some of, some of you here might think little of it. Unlike Paul, you didn't see a blinding light. Like the risen Lord didn't visit you. In fact, you weren't even like a radical prodigal. You weren't addicted to drugs and alcohol. You weren't in a gang. You grew up in the church. But I want you to know, your salvation is no less marvelous. Because you're failing to remember that your salvation is not just a change from being an all right person to a better person. But from being a dead person to a living person. And every time that happens, no matter how good or bad you outwardly appeared, What's happening is a child of wrath is being transformed into a son or daughter of God. The same power that that made Easter goes forth again to bring the spiritually dead to life. It's the greatest miracle God performs, and he's still doing it. And so I want you to know there's no such thing as a weak testimony. There's no such thing as a, a trivial, boring, throwaway testimony. Every story of how God changed a life is something to marvel at. You need to take some time. Think about what God did in your life and just sit in awe, marvel that his grace, for some reason, found you and changed you. That then becomes the heart of worship, which is our response. And thereafter, we're going to respond to God's grace in a plethora of ways. Paul encapsulates that response in verse 10. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. We're not saved by good works, but after saved, we are to perform them. To, to, and they come from a heart of worship, not to pay him back just because we love him. What that looks like, we'll have to save for another time. You want to see it fleshed out, you can read chapters four through six on your own. But I'll tell you what, in short, Being transformed by grace means that you no longer walk according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air. You're no longer indulging in the lusts of the flesh. You're fighting them. But instead, now you walk in Christ by faith, according to his grace, and you bear the fruit of a transformed life. But in all, now that you say and do, you need to let the marvel of God's grace fuel you. And that's been our chief meditation this morning. Like Paul spells out three times in chapter one, talking about our salvation. It was all to the praise of the glory of his grace. Three times, to the praise of the glory of his grace. We were objects of wrath. Now we're, we're subjects of praise. And so you need to praise him. At the beginning, I told you of the Roman circuses where rulers put on various exhibitions to try and please and entertain the masses. What I didn't mention is that one of the main form of entertainment was executions. And the subject of most executions were Christians. They're guilty of nothing else but professing Christ. 
You had men like Ignatius, who were fed to wild lions in the arena. Or women like Perpetua, who were gored by bulls in the arena. And when the animals failed to kill them, which was often, the gladiators were sent in to finish them off. And in the meantime, all manner of inhumane torture was applied to these Christians in the process. But like John Fox records in his Book of Martyrs, he says, quote, Few turned from Christ or begged their torturers to lessen their pains, end quote. Now that's a spectacle. Not like they saw a spectacle of God's grace. That's a marvel of God's grace. You had these Roman pagans. They used to confess Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. That used to be their confession. But they came to be transformed by the wonder of God's grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they have a new confession. A new confession. Jesus Curios, Jesus is Lord. He's the only Lord. He's the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And for that confession alone, they were sentenced to death, thousands. But they willingly embraced that suffering for his name's sake. How could they not? For Jesus came first, and he suffered and died first for their name's sake. But as these people suffered and endured, God used that marvel, the marvel of his grace that would so transform a person that they would give up their lives for the name of Christ. God used that marvel to save and convert thousands. And as it's been said, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. And so now you need to let your life be that next marvel of God's grace. You need to be the next witness to this lost, dying, hopeless world. Whether God uses you as a martyr or not, just let your life be so distinct, so transformed, so touched by his transforming grace that people can't help but look at you and and marvel and wonder and think, what's gotten into you? As they, they hear of the Savior from you, they'll ask you, what has happened? Who has done this to you? Who's changed you? And you won't get to tell them about your risen Savior. We can finish with Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Well, Paul finishes this section. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Our Father, we do indeed pray that to you be the glory in this age and in the age to come, in all the ages. May your name be high and lifted up. You are the King of glory, as is your Son, the Lord of lords. I pray you help us, Lord. You soften our hearts this morning to marvel, to let ourselves be affected by the story of your grace that has come into this world. We have to know and feel that this world is is lost and dying. Something is drastically wrong and there's no hope for any change here below. The only hope for the future is by looking back to what you accomplished through your son on that cross, where he, he bore the weight of all of our sin, took it upon himself, swallowed the cup of wrath to the full and paid all of our debt, Lord. And on that third day, he rose again, victoriously conquering sin, Satan, and death itself, that we might then be saved. Christ Jesus did this, that he might now call us forth to life, to new life, to, to, be, to new birth.
Those of us here who, who ex- have experienced that, who know, we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Impact our hearts. Let, let this not just be a moment, uh, but a, a resolve for a new life of, of marveling at your grace each and every day. That is what will fuel us living for you, yielding up our lives and our lips for your praise each and every day. For any here who have not yet seen, we just pray, Lord, you open their eyes. You show them the bad news, the depth of their own sin. They have a problem before you. It's a problem of death, and the only hope for life is your son. Pray, Lord, you, you cause them to run through the door of Christ by faith, and they will themselves experience this testimony, this unexplainable change through your grace. We give you the glory. We thank you for Christ. We, we thank you that he is risen and that he's risen indeed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.